find seats, please. You know, I did, uh, I don't know, I, I, um, I missed an announcement, and I'm not sure if it was in the screen behind me, but um, just a, the obvious announcement is uh, today's the day when, after our church service, we do our egg drop, um, and it'll be outside here. Oh, thank you, Missy. I'm not sure if you had that up when I was talking about other stuff. but uh, um, So right after church, and I know a bunch of you are helping, so thank you so much. To everybody who is here to pack eggs and have been working hard, we're really, really grateful. Um, thank you to Corey, who heads this up. Um, during the service, you might be hearing the fire truck back up out there. You'll hear the beep, 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 and all that kind of stuff, but um, ignore it. And um, so I hope you'll stick around, and I hope that you'll take the opportunity to meet neighbors. This is always a great time. We get to meet a couple hundred neighbors uh, and um, take advantage, say hello, welcome to Horizon, invite them to our to events coming up this week. So um, we're, we're, I'm going to encourage you to grab a Bible um, and find the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We've been doing, kind of uh, working our way through little bits of this. Um, so um, my taxes are A happy man, um, and this is actually this is actually a yearly experience for me because of the way the federal government uh, views pastors. Um, I am not, according to the federal government, I'm not an employee of Horizon. I'm considered self-employed, so I'm in the same boat with any of you who are self-employed and run your own business. Which means that I do not look at tax day as the day when I get to say, oh. Look at how much money Uncle Sam is sending back to me. Um, that is not my experience. On tax day, when I do my taxes, I become very much aware, in fact, quarterly through the year, I become very much aware of how much money our governments, and by our governments, I mean our city, our state, and our federal government, how much money our governments are collecting in taxes. Um, I don't know if you know this, but you and I, we will pay more in taxes than we will pay for our food, our clothing, and our housing combined every year. And every single year, this is not the way it always was. And every year, I think, how did we let this happen? How did we let this happen? So April may be springtime, but in my heart, every April, my pumpkin gets frosted. <laughs> and I wonder, um, should it be? Is this really a buggable offense, or am I in the wrong for being angry? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I heard a senator on the radio. You can answer this question in a couple minutes, too. I know how you're going to answer, though. <laughs> uh, I heard a senator on the radio on Friday when I was contemplating being angry at taxes. And this senator, this senator is calling for an end to robocalls. He is angry, he said. Americans are fed up with being harassed at dinner time on their phones. So should I, do I even need to ask? 
should we be? Yeah. <laughs> um, is, is it wrong to be angry? No. Oh, I'm pretty much done. We, <laughs> I think. Uh, well, I caught a few minutes of a PBS show a little while ago about a drug company that bought the rights to the EpiPen. And almost overnight, they raised the price uh, 500%. 500%. It went from just under 100 bucks for, two, for, two, for a two-pack to over 600 bucks. And the CEO of the company that bought the rights and then raised the prices, her name is Heather Bresch, and she was called on the carpet on CNN and asked about this. And her answer was, well, it's very complicated. Um, there, there are the costs of rebranding, of repackaging. It's an expensive drug to make, et cetera. Interestingly, CNN pointed out that during the same period of time, her salary as CEO went from, from 2.5 million to 19 million. Um, a 700% increase. And pe people are outraged. Should we be? Yes. <laughs> I wrote these as questions, but... <laughs> uh, the question is, is there ever a just cause to be angry? Wrathful? Somebody doesn't think so, but. <laughs> so do you, do you ever, do you ever dream of a day when no more crack babies are born? When no more teenagers die in basements from opioids? But no more little girls and little boys have their little souls shattered by twisted abusers. No more Christians in Syria and Iraq and Sudan dread the sound of trucks and gunfire at night and the gleam of machetes. You ever dream of that day? Well, dream or not, it is a very real vision. So a man named John, we've been talking a lot about him if you've been around. John is formally a best friend of Jesus. He historically was the last of the 12 apostles to remain alive. All of the others had been martyred for the faith. He himself ended up as an exile in a Roman uh, prison island of Patmos. And the Christians that he had left behind, he was a pastor in a region now in Turkey, a pastor in an area where churches of Ephesus and others were. When he is exiled to Patmos, he left those Christians behind, and he knew that they were facing systematic persecution from Rome, and he knew that his friends were dying. And so John was given a vision, he tells us, and he was told to write this vision, and he did. And that vision is in our Bibles as the very bizarre book of Revelation. And we've been taking a little jaunt through this book, and we're now nearing the end. And because we're nearing the end of the book, John's focus is actually shifting to the end, towards that day in our dreams. So here in Revelation chapter 19, what I'll read for you, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, we have John's vision of hearing Jesus say, enough, 
enough. And he arrives with justice and with wrath. Let me read it to you. Revelations chapter 19, starting at verse 11, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Then in my vision, John said, I saw heaven opened, which is always an invitation in Revelation to see what's going on in heaven. I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself which means there's so much more about Jesus to know than we know now. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who did many mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp, sh sh yeah, sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. So I want to pray, and then we'll talk about that. Father, what we read is gruesome in some regards, a feast of bodies. And yet... Father, this is, in some ways, that dream of someday when evil will be vanquished. Father, we want to understand this, as we always do, and so I am going to ask your help. Um, I will trust that if I get off track and say anything wrong, if I have misunderstood this, then God, I trust that through your spirit you will prevent anybody here from being influenced the wrong way. On the other hand, God, I am going to trust that everything that we talk about that's true and accurate, that you'll take it and that through your spirit, you'll invade our souls and you will transform us 
into the kind of people you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is it, Revelation 19. This is the end. This is the final battle. The Father has finally said enough. And evil and its causes are defeated. Now, John will actually tell this story, this exact same story. He'll tell it several different ways, and he'll tell it several different times in the book of Revelation. In the very next chapter, in 20, he'll tell the same story again about the final battle. And he does this kind of by taking layer upon layer upon layer to create just one picture, kind of like I talked to you last week about the overhead transparencies. But John is telling the same story about the final battle, about the end. And John's vision when he's writing this, what John is seeing and what he's writing is a vision that is just very heavy with signs and with symbols. But I don't think there's any doubt, I don't think anybody here was confused by the signs and symbols that uh, the rider on that white horse that John saw and wrote about, I don't think anybody doubts who that is, right? It's Jesus. It's the King of Kings. Now, on Palm Sunday, um, interestingly, on, on the Sunday we celebrate today, Jesus rode on a donkey um, riding into the town of Jerusalem. But even though he was on a donkey, everybody recognized in Jerusalem that was also a sign. It was a symbol. It was based on a very, very old prophecy long before Jesus was alive by a prophet named Zechariah who said, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, and yet he comes humbly, riding on a donkey. Now that same Jesus is arriving again, riding in this vision of John in Revelation. Only this time, he's riding not on a donkey, humbly, but he's riding as victorious kings always do, on a white horse. And the signs and the symbols that I read for you, those signs and symbols are, are all signs and symbols if you've been following along. We've seen all of them before in the book of Revelation. We've seen, as John described Jesus, we've seen those eyes blazing with fire. We've seen the crowns upon crowns upon crowns on top of his head. We've heard about the robe that he's wearing that's, that's been bloodied. It's as if it's been dipped in blood because Jesus is always, always going to carry the marks of the cross because the cross of Jesus is where the victory was won. It's the cross where he defeated sin and evil. And that sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, we've seen that before. And on his thigh, on the robe on his thigh is his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because when he arrives this time on this white horse, this time he arrives not humbly, but he arrives because he's going to conquer evil. And if you are following along in what I read, there is this really grisly, symbolic invitation that follows his arrival. When he arrives, one of his servants, John says, this angel calls out to all of the carrion eaters of the world, and the angel says, there will be a banquet for you, a feast of flesh prepared for you by God. And then in his vision, all of the enemies, all of the enemy armies of this rider on the white horse, they all line up to fight. They all line up for a battle. 
But if you understood what was read, there never is a battle. There never was a war because the war is already won on the cross. When the king arrives this time, all that is left for the king to do is to dispose of evil that's been defeated and to rid the entire universe of hurt and harm and death and decay and Satan and sin and greed and murder and the entire army of evil dies and the vultures feast. So is it wrong to want justice? Is it wrong to ever want God to arrive with his wrath and with truth? Is it wrong for God to be angry? It was kind of an occupational hazard that I have. Um, over a lot of years, I've heard from a whole lot of people about what they don't like about God, um, what they don't believe about God, what they wish they could rip out of the Bible. And there are two objections that stand out that I've heard from people over and over again. Two things people don't like about God. One, people say, God doesn't seem to do anything about evil. If God is good, why doesn't he put a stop to evil? The second objection I hear over and over is an objection to the wrath of God. People don't like that he gets angry, which is strange, isn't it? People get upset when God doesn't get mad about evil, and then they get upset when he does. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf. His last name is Volf, V-O-L-F. Um, you may not know his name, but he's one of our world's most influential Christians today. He's an author. He currently directs the Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University. He's been a very close advisor to several U.S. presidents and to British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He's a commentator on CNN. You may see him on CNN, NPR, or elsewhere. Uh, Miroslav Volf was born in Croatia in 1956, which was then part of Yugoslavia, which came under the Soviet influence of countries at the time. Because he was born in a region of the world that was dominated by Marxism at that time, Wolf's family, who were Christians, were persecuted, and they were shamed and harassed for their faith, which caused Wolf to actually leave Christianity for quite a while as a young man. He ended up coming back to faith in his senior year of high school. Somewhat quietly, he came back to faith. He was the only Christian that he knew of in his entire high school. Uh, because during his early years, because Wolf was himself a victim of cruelty, um, he hated cruelty. And he actually thought that the idea of a God who gets angry was bar barbaric, he said, completely unworthy of a God of love. Then in the 1990s, his country went to war. And age-old hatreds between the Serbians and the Croatians and Christians and Muslims all bubbled to the surface. And he was there and he witnessed it. And Wolf has since written this. 
my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the region from which I came. 200,000 people were killed, my villages and my cities were destroyed. My people were brutalized beyond imagination. One time, Wolf saw some enemy soldiers pull a young girl from her house, a teenager. He witnessed as they urinated in her mouth before inflicting other horrors on her. And Wolf wrote, I could not imagine God not being angry. Is it wrong to want justice? Is there a just cause for God's anger? There's a guy named Bob Seiple who was a combat pilot during Vietnam. Came home, taught school, became the athletic director at Brown University, and then he ended up becoming the president of Eastern College, now Eastern University, just down the road from us. Horizon is actually privileged to have several distinguished alumni from Eastern. One of them often plays in the band up here. Um, Bob, after his stint as president at Eastern, Bob ended up becoming president of World Vision from 1987 to 1998. In April of 1994, Bob got a call from a coworker in Rwanda about something horrible that was unfolding in Rwanda. Bob went, and in less than 100 days from April 7th through July 15th in Rwanda, less than 100 days, somewhere north of 800,000 Tutsis were killed, most by machetes, by their neighbors. Bob stood on a bridge above a river that was literally clogged with thousands and thousands of stinking, bloating bodies. For Bob, it was a crisis of faith. He said, there, there are no categories to describe such horror. Is it wrong to want justice? Is it wrong for God to arrive in justice and in anger? Don and I went on a date a couple years ago to one of our favorite spots, the Moravian Bookstore in Bethlehem, which isn't quite the same anymore. But uh, the cool thing about the Moravian Bookstore in Bethlehem is it's conveniently located just a few yards away from the Penn State Creamery shop. One of us likes books and one likes ice cream. Actually, we both like both. It's supposed to be a fun evening. But while I was perusing books, I happened to pick up a small book of photographs, just photos, old black and white photos. It was a book that in pictures doc documented the lynchings of black men in America. 
5,000 or so in our country, in my country. The peak of this happened in the 1950s, the good old days. A black man could be lynched by men in white sheets on a Saturday night. And then on Sunday morning, that same group of men would go to church. And on Sunday morning, a group of church people in the South would get their picture taken by the body hanging in the tree. I saw pictures of church groups, church groups, boys and girls, men and women in their Sunday finest, smiling for the camera. I couldn't stop the tears. I was ashamed. What Christian wouldn't weep? Is it wrong to want justice? Is it wrong for God to come in justice and anger? Is it wrong to dream of the day when the rider on the white horse, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, enters the field and finally calls a forever halt to hurt and to harm, to death and decay, to sin and Satan, to greed and murder, and the entire army of evil dies. And the vultures have a feast. Is it wrong to dream? I think you should know that John, when he wrote this, John was writing to men and women who would very likely face persecution and suffering solely because of their faith. Evil for them was not going to be a story from another time and another place. It would be real for them and it would be personal. Now, I think you need to know, I think you have to know, that when John wrote this to them, he did not write it to them so that they could say to themselves, well, someday God will get even. We may be suffering now, but someday evil be, will be vanquished. John was not writing a someday vision. And you need to understand this. So I want to show you something important from what I read. In Revelation 19, maybe you caught this, when the king of kings arrives on his white horse, who is with him? in verse 14, the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen. Now, who is that, that army in white? It's not some army of angels, as you might be tempted to think. In the book of Revelation, those who are dressed in pure white robes are God's people, followers of Jesus. 
Earlier, they're identified, several times in fact, they're identified as those who have had their robes washed in the blood of the lamb, which is obviously bizarre symbolism, imagining a robe washed in blood and it turns out white. But in the symbolism of this book, it makes complete sense. Because if you recall last week, our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus and there they died. So in Revelation, those wearing white are men and women, boys and girls, who are followers of Jesus, who are no longer bearers of all that garbage. It's dead by his blood. But if that's the case... What does John mean by putting people of God, followers of Jesus, side by side with the king of kings in the armies of heaven? What could John mean? He means only that what you do in this life matters. And it matters for eternity. For eternity. Not for someday eternity. But for eternity now. Now. Jesus knew, John knew, I'm sorry, John knew that people he knew, people whose names he knew, he knew they would be dragged before Roman officials and he knew that they would be told to bend the knee to Caesar. And they would hear someone say, confess that Caesar is a God, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And John knew that his Christian friends, people whose names he knew, John knew that they would be forced to say, I will serve Caesar as my emperor and I will serve him well, but nothing more. Bend the knee to him and say, he is my Lord and my God. That I cannot do. And John wanted these brave men and women to know that that faith mattered. Not for eternity someday, but for eternity now. He wanted them to know that their confession of faith in Jesus Christ meant that they were riding side by side with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that in confessing faith, that they were in fact vanquishing evil. It's what John wanted them to know. See, John knew something that I don't think we know very well anymore. John knew that there are two very real worlds, and both exist, and they run side by side parallel to each other. And John knew that God's plans in heaven, one very real world, gets played out on earth. And John knew, and this is why he kept telling us in Revelation over and over and over, he knew that these worlds really are not divided. They're not two separate worlds. He knew that they're connected. And he knew that what we do here on earth matters in heaven and he tells us that we should know this we should know this that what we do here matters in heaven now 
And actually, if you think about it, I think it's really obvious to us. I think it's obvious to everybody. We should know that there were two parallel worlds. We should know that the things that are most important in this world are things we actually cannot see. They exist in this invisible world. Love, for example. Can you put your finger on love? Can you point to it? Can you see it? And yet, love gets played out every day in a very real world of hugs and birthday cards and picnics and parties and sex and saving the last bit of ice cream for somebody else. Love is very much part of these parallel worlds. One we cannot see and one we can see quite well. And what we do in one matters in the other. And someday, the Bible says, someday these two worlds will come together finally and fully and completely. And then we will know and then we'll see. But for now, the Bible says, for now we have to operate by faith, trusting that this world exists. Paul, for example, one time Paul was struggling with this whole issue. And he said in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 13, he said, look, now we don't see things clearly. It's like peering through a fog, squinting through a mist, but it won't be long before we'll see things clearly and we'll see it then, see it all as clearly as God sees it and we'll know him fully just as he knows us. Someday we'll see. But for now, we operate by faith, trusting, as John was encouraging his friends to trust, that their faithfulness to Jesus mattered. That in staying true to Jesus, they were riding side by side with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the conquest of evil. You know, Jesus actually talked about this quite a bit with his friends. There was one time in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus took 72 of his disciples and he sent them out two by two to do kingdom work. And his friends, two by two, they walked through dusty streets, they knocked on doors, they took care of the sick, they helped the poor, they kicked out evil, they told people about Jesus. And when they returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done, Jesus' face looked up and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's a remarkable announcement that what they were doing was actually making a difference in another world, that what we do in this one matters, not in eternity someday, but in eternity now. And that is an astonishing truth when you begin to grasp it. It's astonishing. You know, almost every religion has this idea that the worlds are connected. And almost every religion has this idea, this, this notion that the invisible world of heaven can actually have an influence on this world, which is why taxi drivers in India put little idols of their favorite God on their dashboards 
hoping that their God will help them in traffic. It's why so many Facebook posts get shared with three friends in 30 minutes, hoping that the good luck God of heaven will make me rich here. But Jesus has a radically new idea. It's an idea that turns things upside down. And his idea is not only is it possible to do the will of the Father here on earth, but that when we do the will of the Father here on earth, it actually matters there in heaven. It's a remarkable thought from Jesus that your life and my life is charged with eternal significance and meaning. That our lives and our actions matter, not just in an eternity then, but in an eternity now. That when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rides into battle, you and I are in this fight too. And every moment of grace, every act of love, large or small, every adoption, every drive across town to bring hope to someone dying, every meal delivered to someone, every hand out to someone in prison, every fear you conquer, every day that you add one more day to sobriety, Every time in school you stick up for somebody who's being bullied, every single dime you give away, all of it matters. And it matters not just in eternity next, it matters in eternity now. Now. Maybe you know the name Robbie Zacharias. If you don't know him, he's a remarkable guy. Grew up in India but he has since become uh, probably one of the most influential Christians. Uh, people all over the world have heard Ravi speak. He's one of the most respected intellectuals, uh, representative of faith on university campuses worldwide. Ravi actually had a coworker um, in Iran. Um, he was a Christian minister who was working in Iran. Um, he was driving across Iran with his wife one day, and they stopped in a tiny little Iranian village to buy some bottled water. Now, it's not a crime to be a Christian in Iran, but in reality, it's very, very dangerous to be a Christian in Iran. Well, this minister and his wife, when they stopped in front of this little store, they noticed that there was a man in a soldier's uniform standing outside, leaning against the wall. He was holding a machine gun. The minister's wife looked at that soldier. She reached into the back seat of the car. She grabbed the Bible and she said to her husband, give that man this Bible. The minister said, I don't think so. <laughs> and she said, I'm serious. Give him the Bible, please. He said, finally, okay, I'll take the Bible and I will pray about it while I'm in the store. He got out, he went into the store, he came back, got into the car, started to drive away, and she said, you didn't give him the Bible, did you? 
And he said, well, I prayed about it, and it's not the right thing to do at this time. And she said, you should have given him the Bible. And she bowed her head, and she started praying, Father, forgive my husband. He slammed on the brakes, and he said, okay, if you want me to die, I will. He drove back to the store. The soldier with the gun was still leaning against the wall. The minister looked at his wife. He said goodbye. <laughs> he got out. He gave the man the Bible. And when the soldier opened it and looked at it, he started to cry. And he said, I don't live here. I walked three days to get here. Three days ago, I had a dream in which an angel told me to walk to this village I never heard about before and wait until someone handed me a book of life. Thank you, sir, for giving me this book. I saw Satan fall like lightning says the king of kings and lord of lords riding on a white horse and leading the armies of heaven is it wrong to want justice is it wrong to want god to come in justice and anger is it wrong to dream of the day when the king of kings and the lord of lords enters the field and calls a forever halt to hurt and to harm to death and decay, to sin and Satan, to greed and murder, and an entire army of evil dies and the vultures feast. Is it wrong to dream? Well, we are in this fight too. We are those dressed in white our sins dead, washed in the blood of Jesus. Which means every moment of grace, every act of love, large or small, every adoption, every drive across town to bring hope to someone dying, every meal delivered to someone lonely, every hand up to someone in prison, every fear you conquer, every day you had one more day of sobriety, every time in school you pick up, you stand up for somebody who's being bullied, every dime you give away, it matters. It matters. Not for eternity someday, it matters for eternity now. I saw Satan fall like lightning, says the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we're weary in this world. We're weary of the struggle and the battle. We're weary because it takes place in our own souls. God, it's evident from our cross in this room that we have baggage we want destroyed. And God, 
you're doing so even now. Our sins have been killed and we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And God, what an invitation we now have to ride side by side with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and to vanquish what so harms our world. God, I pray that through your spirit, you'd be inspiring and motivating and encouraging us as John intended to encourage people to carry on, to be people of faith, trusting that what we do matters. That it matters now for eternity. God, thank you for this incredible privilege we have of being yours. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.